Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com or contact your local agent today. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Dominic Rollins, Equity Transformation Specialist at Courageous Conversation. We talk about equity, diversity, inclusion, and many other similar topics. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this episode. Today, we have Dr. Dominic Rollins, Equity Transformation Specialist at Courageous Conversation. Dr. Rollins, thank you so much for giving us some time today. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joe, for having me. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So what does it mean to be an equity transformation specialist? I think we could start there and kind of get into your background. Absolutely. Um, You know, it's sort of what the word implies, um, that I have a job both in my organization and out in the world to attempt to create equity, um, a thing that we in the United States um, have never really had. Um, I'm not talking about the equity in the marketplace where you put some money in and you see it grow. Um, I'm talking about fairness. I am talking about justice. I am talking about people getting what they need to be able to thrive and succeed. Um, And so both in my role at Courageous Conversation, but in my life as a person who has taken up professional space to advance equity, diversity, and inclusion, transforming organizations to be something different than what they were founded to be is exactly what I'm going for. All right. Thank you for that. Now, I want to dive a little bit deeper into it. But first, I want to hear a little bit about your history, because you and I have known each other for, I think, over a decade. Decade. And I've had the pleasure of the past few interviews of, of interviewing friends of mine that I've known for over a decade. Um, so it's always a nice, um, a nice interview to do. Um, so we have a lot of history. But since we initially met when you were at Loyola, talk to me about your career journey um, at Loyola, DePaul, University of Maryland, Harvard, et cetera. So as deep as you want to go, um, take us sure. along that path to getting to Courageous Conversation. I'm, I'm happy to. Um, maybe, though, in the future, you should tell your listeners of like first meetings in our like 10 year <laughs> history, right? Yeah. Um, it's fun to think about and, and to dust off. And uh, the formation story and the origin stories, they're really important stories. Um, so I appreciate the ask. Um, I would even say if we collectively in the U.S. engaged more in our origin story and our formation story, uh, we'd have so much more clarity around why we are at where we are currently. Um, And that's essentially the question, right? Like, tell me about how you got here. Um, And it requires truth and honesty in the engagement of how I got here, how we got here, how did the U.S. get here? But for me, um, I'll go all the way back to being born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. (laughs) And I go go there because I recently moved back to Baltimore. Um, And so I'm in a bit of a homecoming, if you will, for myself. I did my undergrad at The Ohio State University, and there I studied sociology. Um, And that's an important note because it was the first time that I was studying something formally that made my lived experience make sense. 
Um, and in my lived experience, I was trying to traverse a school system that didn't necessarily meet my academic promise. Um, I was trying to figure out like why people lived where they lived in the city, um, particularly because I would only experience people who didn't look like me in certain parts of the city. Um, I had loads of questions that sociology helped me to answer and set me on a path to be in the work that I'm in currently. After leaving The Ohio State University, I completed my master's degree in higher education student affairs administration at the University of Vermont. Um, and this is important because it is my turn towards being in a field to serve others and to help with their development. Um, this is how I start a career in working on college campuses, um, and it is on college campuses that I am bringing this question of how do we be and live in community? Um, fast forward, I leave the University of Vermont to then work at Loyola University of Chicago, where we came to know one another, and I serve as a resident director. Um, and I serve as a resident director as the only Black person on a seven-person team and the only person of color on a seven person team. Um, and what's important about that is that as a professional experience, it is one of the first times where I'm really thinking about what does it mean to do work of building community that's inclusive for our students when I myself professionally am not experiencing the most inclusive place, but I'm working with people with really good intentions. I'm working with people who care a lot, yet there is still a chasm between what I'm experiencing and what they are experiencing. I move on then to serve as assistant dean of students at DePaul University and in that role um, more crystallizes for me, particularly because DePaul as an institution claims to be Chicago's institution. It desires to serve the students of Chicago. It has one of the larger um, commuter populations of students, even as a residential school. And it really is taking up the call to justice as a Vincentian institution. And I got to wrestle with what that meant for me in my own role and what it meant for the institution um, as I am sowing more seeds in the work of inclusion. I leave DePaul to then earn my PhD at the University of Maryland. And my dissertation focused on how Black male leaders on college campuses, administrative leaders, navigate racism. You know, I made a decision that I would take something that was really clear for me as an undergrad in sociology, systems, oppression, power, and privilege, particularly then racism, and say, let's think about what this looks like in an applied setting, a place where I've decided on my professional home. And during that time, I begin to train and facilitate a lot. Um, I, I get the opportunity to lead conversations about racism, sexism, homophobia. I get to have conversations with people about how they develop inclusive workplaces. Um, I get to coach and mentor uh, faculty and staff members who are wanting to shift and change their own practice. I leave the University of Maryland then to go off to Harvard uh, Graduate School of Education to serve as an inaugural chief diversity officer. Um, I'm at that post for a little bit and then I go on to serve as a chief diversity officer at the Dalton School, uh, independent school in New York City. Um, and I leave that post then to join Courageous Conversation as an equity transformation specialist. And I should say the last three jobs in my life have all been wrestling with the question of, how do we live and work together across difference in a world 
that was constructed to be unequal? Yep. This is the question that keeps me up at night. Yeah. Is there a silver bullet? <laughs> <laughs> there is not there's not a silver bullet no nope. um but but if i had to say that that there was one it, it is one around education um and the reason that i i say education um i mean it sounds like an easy answer right education is supposedly the fix to everything but what is coming into view for me uh recently though i've always known it is that there's so much about how the world works and has worked that people don't have an intimate enough understanding of in order then to really digest and engage our contemporary society. And I observe it all the time where folks really are convinced about a different origin story. Yeah. And in their being convinced, it allows for a way of engaging the world that perpetuates inequality. Okay. And how do you think, it, it, and maybe you could give an example, but what has led to a point where people have this firm uh, belief in an origin story that might not be true or that might be skewed or might just be something that they, that somebody wanted them to, to believe? Yeah. Um, to answer this question is also for me to like offer an <laughs> indictment on, you know, American education right. and uh, our media industry. And, yeah, it's um, a very broad question. <laughs> well, and, and so, you know, part of the, the essence of the question is like, so where would people get the wrong story? And the answer to that question is like kind of everywhere. Yeah. Right. So across the country, I could pick up a number of U.S. history textbooks that inaccurately describe, if described at all, the enslavement of African people. So if, if we have inaccuracies in that story, yeah. then, then, then what happens to every other story that comes thereafter? Yeah. Right. That's just one example. You know, we could go through a number of examples and whether those are examples then that are embedded in our K-12 school system and or if they're embedded or and or if there are examples that are embedded in um, family unit and structure, right? So what are parents teaching about? Often parents can only teach as far or as long as they themselves have learned so what about the parent who is the product of the school system that did not offer a complete or full or nuanced history of the U.S.? Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, sorry, I was going to ask, do you feel like there is a generational difference in um, if, if somebody were to just black and white, do we feel like as generations um as new generations come on that we're, we're is a human race becoming more or less open-minded or just, is there something else that is leading to um, conversations maybe not happening as often, or maybe they are happening more often. Um, but from your perspective, how have you seen conversations um, in your career uh, about certain topics like diversity, equity, inclusion, racism, uh, systemic racism, racial inequity? Uh, do you feel like that, that, we're heading down the right path or is there a little bit of work to do? Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think that we're headed down the right path because we are willing to have the conversation more than we have had it previously. Okay. We're also headed down the right path because there is in effect a higher level of both awareness and exposure to something different than you. And those two things, right? The sort of insertion that this is a thing that you should be talking about, which is evolving over time. And that I am physically engaging people who are different than myself. You throw those things together and it's like, you're going to bump into this conversation sort of whether or not you want to. That said, I maintain that we collectively still in, still live in hyper-racially segregated neighborhoods. And what this means is while we might be getting more exposure, my question is what is the quality mm, yep. content of that? If my exposure to difference is via Twitter, yes. Facebook, yes. or YouTube, yes. And I don't have authentic, real relationships across difference because I live in a all-blank neighborhood and go to an all-blank school. We then run the risk of actually still perpetuating the same machinery that has led to tropes, generalizations, and misinformation about people who are different than ourselves. So while we are having the conversation a little bit more, and while we are like having some exposure, uh, I'm still concerned about the who and how we live that leads to relationships that actually then develops some of the best understanding we can have about a human experience that is not our own. How in your uh, kind of careers, how have you inspired, motivated um, people to having more of those authentic face-to-face relationships um, or just even conversations or experiences? What, have you seen anything that you've, that maybe you've experienced or you've taught or somebody's taught you um, that have led people to being motivated to want to do that more and to seek it? Because I think it takes a, a little bit of proactivity more so than than we might think yeah and so so first off i i I attempt to in all of my work tell my own story about um, engaging and experiencing and being then as a result in relationship with folks that are different than than i am Um, and i like to tell that story because i have a belief that as a black person, as a person of color, the assumption around the engaging something different is that that's what white folk have to do, right? Um, or that's what men have to do, or that's what whatever other dominant social identity in our context has to do. And the truth is, as a black person, when I think about how I have built relationship, how college how study abroad, how living different places has like really just deeply and profoundly impacted my worldview because of relationships that I've built. It's been incredible. 
Right. So I tell my own story because the, the, the truth is most folk, you know, often live, are reared and continue um, in a space and place that can produce a lot of the same. That said, not everyone's moving everywhere, right? Not everyone's going to have an opportunity to travel. There has to be some other ways. Right. And the, the other ways is really to be hypercritical of what you take in. Because what you take in via the news, via the media, via the books you read is more of the same, you certainly won't enlarge in your perspective. And I believe there's some benefit to enlarging your perspective. This is a place of departure. Some people have a belief that what they believe, who and how they are, is absolute. It is penultimate. I have a belief that there is loads of ways to be and that my job as a human on this planet is to take in as much information as I possibly can about the different ways to be and then ensure that I'm creating the conditions for others to be able to be their full authentic selves. So that requires me reminding myself that 7 billion people live on this planet. <laughs> the way that I am doing it and the way that the people closest to me to do, doing it it is not the only way, and it's not the correct way. It is a way. Yeah. Right. Now, now that's a larger conversation. That's really about you know perspective, creating room. We start to get into more specific conversation when we say the perspective that we're usually trading in also has power, and has power to then make it the perspective that everyone else should have. And that's and that, that's what happens with racism. That's what happens with sexism. That's what happens with so many of the isms that it norms a way of being and, and reserves a set of goods and currency and value in that. Yeah. And then has actually a set of penalties if you don't do it that way, be in that way. And my one of my biggest arguments is that um, I didn't get a say in how it is and as a result of not getting a say of how it is, I shouldn't have to be forced to comply. Rather, if you give me a say, an opportunity to indicate what meets my needs, how it could be, then in fact, we are co-creating something together that's a norm that has all of us in. And that's the definition of diversity, it sounds so like. Well, it, is, it is a definition, right? It's actually right. operationalizing diversity at some point. It's like, we got all this, we got difference. What will we, in fact, do with it? Will we default to what we inherited? And that default to what we've inherited, we know doesn't work for everybody. Okay. And, 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 and that is actually in some more like ideal, that, that, that's, like, that's a little more idyllic in so much that, that that's not treating all of the harm that has been caused. Yeah. It has not been fully accounted for or repaired or restored to get to a place of healing, right? You know, my wondering that I have is if everyone in this country knew and understood, for instance, just the Jim Crow South as a concrete example, had a deep and rich understanding of that, what sense of obligation or responsibility would they then have for the work that they do. Because how could you not know, or how could you not respond to, for instance, 
lynching of black bodies that was common practice for decades, how could you not think once that washed over you that that has material consequence now and that we collectively should have an obligation a responsibility to heal that in, in, in all of our sectors of work. And I think every yeah. single sector could do, could, could, could concretely take up our history and say, if this, then this, and here, let me find my work and place in it. Yeah. It's, it's extremely heavy emotionally to think about it in a way that leads to the feeling of some responsibility or, or actions that need to be had. And I think that's probably part of the reason why um, it's, 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 it's easy to, to just to ignore and to avoid and, and ignorance is bliss mm -hmm. because it is extremely mm -hmm. heavy <laughs> to ponder yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that often is a roadblock in the conversation. And um, I, I have a belief that part of the actual heaviness is actually also connected to its newness, hmm. right? So possibly if we didn't just shelve that and figured out how to integrate a knowing and understanding of that in a way that could inspire and mobilize, we'd get further, right? I mean, what you're, what you're speaking to is one of the exact reasons why so many um, school districts have sanitized if you will, the history is because it's so heavy and it's so hard. Part of the human experience, I believe, is actually having to traverse the heavy and the hard. Show me the family and or the children who have benefited from the like stuffing of family problems and drama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and, 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 I, and I, I use that as an example because it's personal, local, and immediate, right? Most people can think to themselves, yeah, it came back to bite me, my brother, and so-and-so when we didn't learn that our father was an alcoholic. Yeah. Right? We, we don't get through our shared humanity without redress on the things that are heavy and hard. Um, and so collectively, there's a need. Now we can come up with a path so we can address the how, but we yeah. can't not address the what. And so in an ideal world, if we get to the point where that's a conversation that had, that's a, um, the, like I mentioned, these conversations are had, how do you then connect it to things like systemic racism, generational wealth, um, healthcare and how it's impacted people um, even though it's something that may have happened 150 years ago, 50 years ago, even, um, how do you then connect it sure. to maybe make it even more relevant today? What can we do now and in the future to, to keep improving it? Is that, yeah. is that possible? It's, it's a great question. And I think yeah. it's, it's actually the, that question um, is a key one because the answer that it is getting heard, for instance, is something like, take reparations, right? Yep. The reason, for instance, that reparations is hard for folks to wrap their heads around is because of the gulf between the thing that happened and the thing we want done about it. Yep. And so the process actually has to be that we have to think and imagine what the implications are. 
Now, scholars have done this, right? Scholars have said, like, if you take, a, a, you know, this group of people who were enslaved and just start to do the play-by-play of all the historical things that then there happened, right? So yeah. they didn't experience the Jim Crow South. Maybe they survived that and moved to, you know, the North during the Great Migration. Well, they still were in a segregated school system that didn't meet any outcomes. So as a result of that, they didn't get a college degree. As a result of that, where are they now placing the workforce? So one of the things that the masses can't do is really imagine what have been the consequences along the way. Yep. Yep. And I I have a belief that if more people would imagine that and more people with power would imagine that, then they would take serious the work that is needed contemporarily to redress it. I by no means am, am suggesting that reparations is the answer. But what I am saying is that if reparations represents a resolution that people can't really stomach and wrap their head around, that has so much to do with not understanding implications that impact along the way, then it has to do with there needs to be, you know, a way to solve for this. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah, no, it, it, I think um, over the past I don't know, 18 months, um, after starting this nonprofit and, and learning a lot about the different nonprofits and organizations out there doing a lot of work. I think one of the main things that I've learned is just to ask why multiple times, try to get to the core of maybe what a problem might be. Um, and I think that, that has been my biggest takeaway. And, and I think that's kind of like a working backwards of like, if this action happened on the Capitol or if this action happened um, somewhere else, what has been leading up to it um, and, and a lot of times it can, you can take it back all the way to, um, you know, slavery in, in 1865 and before that. Um, and, and I think that's kind of one of the learnings that I've had. Um, and I'm currently still having, um, just to try to, to connect everything and, and understand where the biggest challenges that we're facing are and, um, you know, where conversations should, should be deepened. And, and so, yeah. yeah. As you say that, it, re- it reminds me, and I want to offer this, that you know, one of the things that's fundamental to my own approach in shepherding, ushering, equity, diversity, and inclusion work, and then also specifically shepherding, ushering, and facilitating conversations is to get people to unearth the why. Um, so I have a belief and it's my own critique around like how we sort of teach and learn and you know what what we are as products of a schooling system is that we don't we don't actually develop critical thinking skills. So asking why, generally speaking, is foreign to folk. Yeah. And then asking why, specifically speaking, around things that I don't actually feel like I have to understand because nothing would change about my world if I did. Mm. is even more difficult yep right and so approaching this work from a place that says i want to build one's critical thinking skills so that they can engage this and other things thoughtfully centers someone's learning and then centers getting under the stuff why 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 would your parents have taught you that What was going on in the world at that point that may have led to that being a teaching versus something else being a teaching? Yeah. 
I grew up in a house where I had a father that told me we don't talk about religion and politics. Why would my dad tell me that? Okay, well, I was born in the 80s. You know, and during the 80s, we are seeking and seeing some of the benefits that come along with redress from the 1960s and civil rights movement. Affirmative action is becoming popularized and we are becoming increasingly polarized around identity topics and politics. So my father had a why. He grew up in the Jim Crow South. He saw what it would do. I wasn't taught to ask him why. That wasn't a thing we engaged in. Yeah. Why does get you to some profound places uh, that's super necessary? And one of the things that I believe is actually liberating in the human experience is being able to understand your own situatedness and always be able to learn a little bit more. I want for everyone to have that, regardless of their social identities. Yeah, definitely. So there are a couple terms that you mentioned to, to get your perspective on. Oh, sorry, I think I was meaning. So there are a couple of terms that you mentioned that I want to get your perspective on. And one is, is DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, or equity, inclusion, and diversity, however you want to arrange them. Uh, what does that mean to you? Maybe you could take it word by word, maybe start with, with equity, yeah. and then we could go to diversity and then inclusion. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, um, particularly because they're, they're buzzwords. Um, and also particularly because uh, them together now constitute a field of work that um, in labor force participation in roles and titles has grown exponentially in the last year. Yep. So, you know, if you're a person listening in, you you may have gone from never seeing these words to be like, hey, we got one of those in my job right now. Right? <laughs> I'll definitely raise my hand for that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, equity, if we start with equity, um, equity is, a, is about the the creation, delivery of um, fair, just systems, policies, and practices that have an ability to account for where people are at and what they need. Um, one of the easier ways to define equity is to put it up against a, another word that we all often know and understand, which is equality or to be equal. Um, and with equality, everybody gets the same thing, equity, Everybody gets what they need. You know, equality, I give everybody a size 12 shoe. That's the size that I wear. And my group of friends, is, you know, they forgot their shoes. They all need shoes. I give them all size 12. It's equal. If I gave people shoes that fit them specifically, that is getting at a version of equity. And the reason that equity is important in our U.S. context is because we never actually gave folks what they needed. We set up systems that weren't only inequitable, they were also unequal. So equity is a really attempting to take an account fully context, histories, and meeting needs systemically, like within systems. The diversity is just that, it's different, right? And we talk about diversity um, in a way where we prioritize a conversation about race, sex, gender identity, expression, uh, sexual orientation, religion, ability. Um, we prioritize a lot of those because those are the social identities that in our contemporary experience has had policy, 
legislation, formal exclusion around. They're also the social identities that we find in our culture there to be meaning and interpretation about. Like we teach people about these social identities. You, know, you recently had a kid and when that kid was born, that doctor announced a gender as connected to their parts. And you may or may not be making decisions right now to help that kid understand their social identity of gender by virtue of the clothes that you were addressing that kid in. Mm -hmm. So this is all around us. And it makes us a bit of who we are. And it's how we then talk about diversity. Inclusion would be that felt sense that you are a part. People can measure, if you will, inclusion in organizations sometimes through policies that exist, right? I'll think of like family leave as an example. Yeah. Particularly if I saw in a family leave policy different kinds of families named, if you will. Then if I was a member of that kind of family, whatever its composition, I might feel included. Inclusion shows up in the symbols and markings, if you will, in physical spaces. If I see that they represent me, I may also feel included. One of the advances in organizational life, if you will, has been um, surveys, instruments to help us measure this yeah. thing that sometimes can feel pretty ephemeral. You know, if you've ever been out with a group of friends and, and you are the new person, right? And so they're friends of friends, if you will. And you're about 10 minutes in and you know, you're not included. Someone has done a thing, said a thing, invited you in, ensured that they would talk about something that mattered to you. Trying to measure that is difficult. Yeah. It's one of the things that I'm actually proud of as I work in this space that we're attempting to do, which is to get a clearer understanding of a human experience that's sometimes really hard to put our finger on. But those will be the three words that are, you know, often getting talked about right now. All right. And then you already covered the equality versus equity portion. Um, I, I feel like of all of those, uh, equity is, is and maybe in my opinion, or maybe from the conversations I have, is the hardest to give examples of. Um, so how do you have any examples of how equity could play out in maybe an idealistic or maybe a future um, system that we have in the government, whether it be healthcare, housing, education, um, et cetera. I don't know if you have an example. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some common examples that we, that we think about, right? So here's one that most of your listeners will be familiar with pay equity and the gender pay gap. Right. And the question may exist, like, why is that thought about, um, as an equity issue? Right. It's thought about as an equity issue because when we look role for role with the same set of inputs into labor force participation, we can't really explain any other difference in a why than gender. So, we get a pay equity gap and suggest that we have to close a gender pay equity gap because the data are so full and robust that make it very clear that nothing else is really at play here 
for the difference between what person A makes and what person B makes than the sex that they have and the gender that they identify with. And, and so it, it feels a little counterintuitive because it suggests that in order to like do the equity thing, you must have already had a problem. And that's kind of true. And the, the problems are like infinite. The question that you can ask yourself when you're trying to figure it out is, do differences in outcomes exist across dimensions of difference? Because they shouldn't. What's the reason that like Asian identified students perform better than white students or perform differently or better than black students? What reason would that be? Now, one of the places, well, I'll leave that as a hanging question. One of the places yeah. that, that, that trip people up in the equity conversation is they locate all of the explanations in the individual. So the reason they would say is that they work harder, they're smarter, they're better prepared, they, right? And individual explanations often can be okay and work at the unit of one. So when I'm entering an equity conversation, I have rolled up to the aggregate. I am talking about a function with masses of people. So you're not going to tell me that when I see 10 percentage points different between two groups of folk, that that all gets explained, that collectively, but, but we then have other narratives. So if I stay there in education and I stay there with Asian folk possibly outperforming white folk and black folk, someone would then come in with something like the model minority myth. And then we start to get biological explanations of like aptitude, which is just dumb. There's no other way <laughs> that I can sort of explain it, right? But, you know, the point that I want to drill home is that it isn't actually a question of whether or not equity is an issue, given the world that we've inherited. Trust that it is. Get clear on where it is existing and then find the problems in the system yeah. because that's where they lie. Okay. Um, a couple other buzzwords that I wanna talk about, um, personal and institutional biases. Um, how do those come up and how have they come up in the work and, and how have you tried to educate and, um, and mitigate biases that people have? Yeah, yeah. So, and, and let's be clear on what we mean when we say bias, right? Because um, bias doesn't have to be a bad thing. It is a thing, right? Popularly, we understand it as a, as a bad thing. At the end of the day, our brains have a lot of information that they have to process and manage. And we have a belief that we have a lot more control over our brains than we actually do. And bias comes in based on the auto associations that are like deeply ingrained, right? And for some things, this works really well. Um, for instance, driving a car, because we have an auto association that red equals stop and green equals go. But given the world that we live in, we have an auto association that leads to a bias on some things that, that are inaccurate. Right? So I identify as a black man and I can tell you that by virtue of news and media, that I likely probably have a bias that, that suggests that black men are dangerous. 
because I'm actually indoctrinated that indoctrinated with that as a message all the time. So if we want to get to the place of personal bias, you got to get to a place of trying to understand some stuff that you have been conditioned to believe and have associations with that you are unaware of. The Harvard Implicit Association Test is one of the only um, and better instruments that begin to give us an indication of where we might have associations that lead us to the path of bias. When we are in our organizations with positions of power, we have to be concerned about the biases that we may have as they will have a direct impact on the people we're working with. So they'll shape who we hire, they'll shape who we offer our promotion to, they'll shape who we have random water cooler conversations with. And so you gotta understand it for yourself. To answer the question of institutional bias, well, let's just take all of those leaders who have some personal bias and run an organization and they're making decisions that yeah. impact the 1,000 folk who work there. Well, that personal bias just became an institutional bias. Right. And, and similarly to what we talked about before, is, is education part of a silver bullet as well for that? It, it is because folks are unaware. So, so, so folks don't know. Um, and even when you get them some awareness, folks don't believe. So I can't tell you how many times that I have run a session on unconscious bias and I have non-believers. Yeah. I know, no, 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 I, I am very deliberate and clear. Okay, <laughs> go ahead and take about three of these tests and come back to me and tell me what they say about what associations that you have. Um, we aren't actually as um, understanding or have as much information about how we work as humans um, we don't have we don't have it. Um, we think that we do, but we but we don't. And the more that you can educate and get clear on it, the better. Yeah. All right. Um, I I just looked at the clock right now, and time has flown by. Uh, we might have to have a part two of this. <laughs> you know, I would be happy to have a part two with you because uh, this is the stuff that I get to do all of the time and I have spent um, literally my entire professional career wrestling with these questions, particularly the one of, you know, how do we live, work and thrive across differences in a world that was designed to be unequal? Um, and I do believe that a big part of that is being in the conversation to expand yep. our own thinking, particularly across difference. Um, because actually the more that we know um, about others, um, and what their experience is like, um, the more we carry those stories in to our spheres of influence is that we have power and control. Yeah. So I'm sure one of my last questions, and it's usually how we end um, the, these interviews is, and I'm sure you've been asked it a lot, and I know I asked you this, but how, how could people learn more? Where could they go to, to dive deeper into some of these topics? Do you have any favorite books, articles, websites? Um, that people could start with that you've found have had a larger impact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's it's a great it's a great question, and um, unfortunately or fortunately, like my my answer is often like we're going to start with the Google. <laughs> you know, and, and, and the reason yeah. I say that is because the the branches and paths that someone can go down 
are just like numerous and there's so much content out there now that any person could have a curated list of like articles, podcasts, YouTube interviews that meet their own need. What I would actually suggest folks do is get curious. Mm -hmm. You know, when you hear the term and that term lands on you in a certain kind of way, or you hear a conversation and you're like, and you're in a place of disbelief, get curious about that. And then go do your work in that area. Put differently, feed and nourish your own resistance. It sounds a little weird, but when you're showing up, not believing, not listening, not thinking something's true. That's exactly the place where there's more for you to know. Yeah. All right. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Rollins, for your time um, and, and, and educating us and having us be on the journey that we have of our tenants of awareness, education, and engagement. Really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll have to have a round two here soon. Can't, can't wait. And I'm happy to be back. My pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into this episode. If you know of a great organization or individual leaving a positive impact, we'd love to tell their story. Check us out and contact us at gtzp.org. Don't forget, for more stories like this, you could also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Instagram followers are link trees in the bio. And for podcast listeners, we are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks for listening and see you again soon.